podcast from the BJSM community. I'm Karim Khan, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm delighted to have the privilege of being with Professor Damien Griffin to talk about some very exciting new information that he has to manage hip problems. Hip problems are a really important part of all of our community's practice. We've had podcasts from some of the greats in the field before, including Damien, and here is an exciting opportunity to update as of around June of 2018. Damien, thanks a lot for being on this BJSM podcast again. Hi, Karim. Good to see you again. Can you please bring the listener up to speed on what was known about the sporting hip, Damien, before we move to your new discovery? So over the last few years, Karim, we've been trying to understand why some young people, usually people who are active, they might play sport, uh, why they develop pain in their hips. Uh, So these are not people with arthritis in their hip. There are people who are developing damage within the hip joint, uh, often a tear of the cartilage inside the hip or the labrum around the edge of the socket. And what we've learned is that this is most often a consequence of the shape of their hip. So you can think of this as being uh, the ball and the socket not fitting together properly. Uh, There are various ways that can happen, but the commonest way is for the ball not to be properly round. So it's egg-shaped instead of spherical. So you can imagine this egg-shaped ball moving in the socket. It's a bit like a square peg in a round hole. That causes uh, rubbing and damage to the inside of the socket. Can you paint the clinical scenario, please, Damien? Who are we talking about when we consider the femoroacetabular impingement syndrome? These are generally younger people. So most of the patients I see are anything from uh, teenagers, 16, 17, 18, up to people maybe in their 40s. They're people who are complaining of pain. That's the most important criterion. Uh, So this is a a painful syndrome. Pain that they feel typically in the front of their groin. And they might point at the front of their hip or they might grip the side of their hip. Um, These are signs that we call a triangulation sign where they say, I can't touch the painful spot, but I can use my two fingers to show you where it is. Uh, Or they might grip around the side of the hip and we call that a C sign because their hand is in the shape of a C. So all they're trying to show you there is the pain is deep inside the the hip area. Um, And when you examine them, you'll find that as you move their hip joint, as you come up into flexion, and especially if you internally rotate in that position, then they'll get pain which is just like their normal pain. Um, It may be a sharp or catchy pain, and sometimes it's just aching pain that comes on as you go into that position. And really what you want to do is to ask them, is this the sort of pain that you get when you're doing your activity or playing sport. Um, Recognise though that sometimes the pain may not come on particularly with sport. It may be much more simple things like walking up and down stairs, getting in and out of a car, sitting in a chair for a prolonged period. These are all movements where the hip joint goes to a position where that uh, aspherical ball rubs against the socket. And then, of course, you may have some investigations uh, for them and typically you'll have an x-ray These are not people with arthritis, so you don't see arthritis on the x-ray. What you might look out for is that the ball and the socket are not quite the right shape. They're not fitting perfectly together. Really, to understand that properly, though, you'll need to have some cross-sectional imaging like CT or MRI. But at this stage, where you're just seeing the patient in the clinic, the key thing is to be excluding osteoarthritis. And if you do all those things, if you find pain that you're sure is coming from the hip joint... Um, and you have some positive signs of impingement in this uh, flexion and internal rotation movement, 
and you are confident that they don't have arthritis, then you're well on the way to a diagnosis of femoris tabular impingement syndrome. And we talked about that in a previous podcast, and we published about that in the BJSM a couple of years ago with the Warwick Agreement, which just laid out some really simple criteria for making that diagnosis. And at that time, there was a challenge about what type of management to do. In that previous podcast, you left us with some questions saying we're not quite sure as to which of these treatments should be applied when, and since then you've made a lot of progress. Congratulations. So let's talk about a typical patient and what our listener can learn from the recent discovery. So let me just uh, describe a patient that I saw uh, last week. A chap called Paul, he's 25 years old, uh, came to see me um, having seen a couple of other doctors and physiotherapists, uh, frustrated really because Although his job is an office job, what he loves to do is to play football with a five-a-side team, which he does a couple of times uh, a week. Um, he goes for a run most weekends. He likes to go cycling with his wife. So not a, a professional sports person, but someone who enjoys being active. His frustration is that whenever he starts doing any of these sports, he gets pain, just as I was describing a moment ago, deep in his groin. It doesn't come on immediately. It comes on gradually while he's doing the sport or the activity. Um, can be a bit sharp, but mostly is aching pain. It used to be that it only came on if he'd really played a hard five-a-side match. Now it's coming on at the beginning of the match and it's making it difficult for him to complete the match. And it used to be that as soon as he stopped playing, it went away. Now that pain is continuing on after the match into the evening and making it maybe painful at night and even the next day sometimes he's still a bit sore. His frustration is that he keeps talking to people about this, going to see doctors, having physiotherapy, none of that's actually making him any better and no one had been able to give him a clear diagnosis of what the problem was. In fact his GP had said you know, well, you're a young man, uh, there's not really much that I can do to help you when you've got a hip problem. Uh, you just need to live with it, um, calm down on the five-a-side football, do less, and when you're 60 or 70, you might have arthritis and you might need a hip replacement. You can imagine how frustrated he was. He's 25 years old and someone's saying to him, for the decades to come, you must do less. So the first thing we we're able to do with him is to get a diagnosis. And actually, I think this is really helpful. If patients can understand what's going on and you can uh, explain it to them and you can do it simply, you can draw a diagram. Uh, we had the uh, infographic that we did with the Warwick Agreement, which I give to patients that uh, just explains to them what the problem is and how we can manage it. Uh, we can show them scans. So in that case, I did a CT scan of his hip and we made a 3D reconstruction so we could see the shape of his hip. And I was able to show him that he had a cam shape. That's what we call this egg-shaped hip. Uh, I was able to show that to him and uh, uh, he understood what the problem was. So then he's feeling a lot happier. Ah, someone's been able to pin down what the issue is. And then we can talk about treatment. So I always start off by saying, you know, what, what, what options have we got for adjusting your, your lifestyle? And I think that education and uh, lifestyle piece is important. Um, for example, I once had a, um, a hurdler who uh, hurdled with his left leg leading and uh, he didn't want to be having any other treatment except something very, very simple, so we just switched him to right leg leading, and that took away his pain completely. Um, a few years later, it did come in the trailing leg on the other side, but uh, you can see the point that if, if there's some way that you can change the way the patient is behaving to avoid those impinging positions, then straight away you may solve their problem. 
that wasn't really an option for Paul because he loves playing five-a-side football. It's what it, you know, it's part of his life. It's what he wants to do, and so telling him to stop playing football wasn't a goer. So uh, then we started thinking about other treatment strategies. So painkillers, he didn't want to be taking tablets. Um, he'd had some physiotherapy already, but I don't think it was very specific or directed. And so the first thing I talked to him about was a conservative treatment strategy. And we do increasingly understand what that looks like. Uh, we know it's got to be based on uh, the individual circumstances. So it has to involve an assessment of deficits around the hip joint. And we think that some people don't have good muscle control or good muscle strength or both. And so they can't control what their hip does. So as they move, the hip joint moves into painful positions and they don't have the ability to control that. So first thing is an assessment that uh, gets you to a point where you understand the detail of that. And then having worked out what those deficits are, you can plan an individualized and progressive program to improve strength and control around the hip. And this may be why some people who have um, an adverse hip shape don't have any problems with it because they can control their hip. But other people, perhaps like Paul, do have problems because they can't control it. So first strategy that we talked about was a uh, um, physiotherapy-led rehabilitation strategy. You could call that conservative care. Second strategy is to do some surgery to repair damage inside the hip and to reshape the hip. And that I do by arthroscopic surgery, uh, keyhole surgery, and uh, there are different ways of doing it but the advantage of keyhole surgery is that patients can recover really quickly from that and uh, we have a good track record of people being able to get back uh, within a matter of weeks to everyday activities and within a couple of months to sport. So these are the two strategies that we could talk to him about and until recently we ended up just saying well these are two possibilities which one would you prefer? And as you can imagine, patients would say to me, well, I don't know, I've never had this problem before, you're the doctor, tell me what I should do. And uh, we did not know which strategy was the right one to follow. We will get an update on a podcast from a current top physiotherapist to talk about the specifics in that. That will go very well with your comments today. But let's move on to this new evidence because you're more confident when you speak to someone about the surgical side and how effective that may be. So this trial really helps in us managing Paul and giving advice to Paul because we were comparing the strategy of arthroscopic surgery with a strategy of uh, physiotherapy-led rehabilitation. Uh, we called that personalised hip therapy. Uh, and that's absolutely what Paul wants to know, which is the one that's going to give him the better result. And what we found was that on average, uh, people went from a score of about 40 points, this is in a scale where 0 is the lowest score and 100 is the highest score, so 40 is, is pretty bad actually, these were people with quite significant pain and disability. They went from about 40 points to about 60 points in the uh, group that had arthroscopy, and from about 40 points to about 50 points in the group that had uh, physiotherapy. So both groups improved, both strategies seem to work, but the surgery strategy works uh, better with the difference between the two groups being both clinically significant and statistically significant. What does that mean for Paul? Well, it means that if he's 
Not sure which strategy to follow if he and I, in our discussion, can't judge which is the best one for him to do, then this evidence tells us he'd be better off choosing surgery. Doesn't mean that that's the case for every patient, this is on average, but in circumstances where we're in equipoise, we can't uh, come to a clear conclusion about which one to recommend, then the trial tells us that strategy is the, that uh, surgery is the one to choose. And if we underscore this in the clinical setting, because that's important, it's in the context of someone giving quality physiotherapy a good trial, especially if the hip isn't showing signs of early degeneration. Yes, so um, in, the, in the trial, all the patients had hips that didn't have arthritis. So this is not a trial about how to treat arthritis. This is a trial about uh, managing patients who've got pain but do not have osteoarthritis, who have indeed the diagnosis of femoris tabular impingement syndrome. But Paul is like that. He's one of those sorts of patients, so it's relevant to him. It is a trial that includes people who've had some physiotherapy before, just like Paul. Most of the patients in the trial had already had some physiotherapy before they were recruited into the trial. So it means that it's generalizable to someone like Paul as well. Um, but it is important that the strategy of physiotherapy-led rehabilitation is not just a bit of physiotherapy. It's a very individualized and progressive program. And we wanted it to be a good program because we wanted to have a fair comparator for surgery. We didn't want to be saying to Paul or someone like him in the future that surgery is better than having bad physiotherapy. That's no good to him at all. We wanted to say that if you can get some really good physiotherapy or if you can get some good surgery, then on average the surgery is going to be a bit better. So let's wrap this up with a couple of helpful messages for our audience who's going to be really grateful for your time, Damien. Well, it was really nice to be able to present this study to the Isokinetic Conference yesterday. Um, and I think what people are asking me now and what we're going to work on next is trying to bring together the different trials that have been going on around the world that are similar to the one we've done. Um, fashion, uh, that's what we called our trial, is just one of perhaps five or six similar trials that are going to be published in the next few years, including one actually uh, that is a sham surgery trial. So we'll get some information about placebo effect as well. So we will need to bring all of those together. And the key thing we need to do as we bring them together is to try to identify what the characteristics were of patients who have benefited more from surgery or more from uh, physiotherapy and rehabilitation. At the moment, the answers I've given you are about averages. On average, it's better to do surgery. What we really need to know is, in Paul, what factors should we measure in order to determine whether he's better off having the surgery or the physiotherapy? At the moment, I can use some judgment, but it's not based on evidence. If we can get that evidence, then we're going to be a whole lot further ahead than we were a few years ago. If I made a point and said, well, could individual physios improve on what was done in fashion if they have the resources and the time and the patient complies, what would you say? Oh, definitely. So I know there are a lot of physiotherapists listening to this. Uh, let me give them some suggestions. Firstly, if you're treating patients with femoris tabular impingement syndrome, have a look at the personalised hip therapy program. Uh, it was published in BJSM uh, two years ago. Uh, it's easy to look at. It's uh, um, open access. Have a look at that and 
think, is this what I'm doing when I see a patient like this? Um, it's, it's a great starting point. But it was designed as something that could be delivered by a physiotherapist in the constraints of the National Health Service, um, where we know that there's not as much time and not as much money and not as much uh, uh, facility as ideally there might be. So it involved six to ten face-to-face -face sessions, uh, quite a lot of advice and guidance. Now we trained physiotherapists to do that. Um, all the physiotherapists came on a course and we taught them how to do it. Uh, but it's not complicated. So everybody could do that. Now if you've got more resource, uh, for example, if you're a physiotherapist uh, working in a, in a sports club and you've got the capability to spend more time with your patient, I think you can do a great deal more. And uh, people like Joe Kemp, who are developing fantastic programs of physiotherapy, are going to be able to give all sorts of uh, detailed um, uh, and very carefully planned programs that a physiotherapist could do. I think physiotherapists are actually more than able to recognise what these deficits are and to develop programs that will enable them to make that better in patients. And if they've got more time and more uh, resource to do that with, they can probably achieve greater effects than we were able to do in our trial. Of course, I'm going to look to those physiotherapists to do the trials that prove that doing more intensive physiotherapy provides better outcomes. Uh, but I know that those sorts of trials are already beginning. Uh, and that's fantastic that the whole community is getting really stuck into trying to develop the evidence in this field. Damien, let's leave it there. That's a fantastic insight. And I do feel really privileged, as I've said. Um, paper came out in The Lancet three days ago. Our community is listening to this very freshly. Thanks to Tun for listening and hope you get a chance to have a physically active day. 